Ladies and gentlemen, the tiny DevOps guy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Tiny DevOps, uh, where we talk about dev and ops and all related topics for small companies. I'm your host, Jonathan Hall. And today I'm really excited to have special guest, Rob Walling, who has been doing this sort of work far longer than I have. Uh, he is uh, the host of a popular podcast, probably the first podcast I ever listened to, actually, um, Startups the Rest of Us. He's also a founder or maybe co-founder of, uh, uh, I'll let you describe it, but Tiny Seed. Um, he runs a conference for small, mostly SaaS type companies, but uh, I, I won't say too much. Rob, why don't you tell us uh, your background and and uh, yeah, fill in the gaps that I left there. For sure. Thanks for having me on the show, man. I appreciate it. Yeah. So uh, Tiny Seed, you mentioned, is the first startup accelerator that is caters to SaaS bootstrappers, and so our our terms are bootstrapper friendly. And so we are the we're kind of the not venture capital. We still invest. We, we you know in in companies we write checks and. Um, we have a year-long remote mentorship program, advice, and you know all the stuff that you would want. We do it in batches too, so there's a community. And we are about two and a half, three years in. We funded 60 companies, and we have money to fund another, I mean, geez, 150 or something in the next three years. So it's it's okay. picking up. And that's fun, right? That To me, this is kind of what I've been doing for free and on the side for like 15 years. And I finally get uh -huh. to like do it, you know, for, for a living. And then you mentioned uh, MicroConf, which uh, started in 2011 and started as in-person events for software entrepreneurs. And um, now we run, I think we'll run like 13 in-person events this year. And then we will, we, we have an online community and a lot of resources, a YouTube channel and all that. So it's, it's all around helping helping technical usually technical i'd say we about 80 percent like technical folks because mm -hmm. we i was a developer or yeah i used to be a developer and um my co-founder was a developer and so that's where we started with like developers but you know now we have 20 30 percent who are not and that's helping them build startups whether they're small or you know larger it's it, it, that's the uh that's what i've been doing for a while now cool so I think I was first introduced to you with your book. I read your, I think mm -hmm. the ebook, um, Start Small, Stay Small. And mm -hmm. from there, I learned about your podcast and your conferences and all that stuff. Um, and, and that book is is really, if I recall, it's written for developers who want to advance their career on and, and their independence, right? That's right. Yeah, the, that's, the tagline is a developer's guide to launching a startup. That is literally yeah. like the, you know, the subtitle of it. And, that, and that's kind of been your vision all along or, or, or uh, your, I mean, I think personally you wanted that freedom. Uh, I remember hearing you talk about it on your own podcast that you, uh, you, you did the grind because you didn't want a boss anymore, if, if I'm that's not right. mistaken. Yeah. Freedom, purpose, and relationships are what I was, what I was seeking and getting that freedom of like, Hey, I want to, I mean, we're, we're developers, we're makers. Like I wanted to make interesting stuff and not be told. I, want, I didn't want to build stuff for other people anymore. And I didn't want to be told what to do it and how to do it. And so it's mm -hmm. like being your own boss really is, really is all it's cracked up to be. I mean, it, it comes with its own headaches, but I, I love it. I, you know, I couldn't go back. Yeah. Cool. So I'm interested in learning from you, especially as you've now uh, started doing uh, investing and in, in, I know you don't, you are, you are an investor, but you also run the tiny seed and you work with other investors. I'm curious in answering a question. Um, what do external parties, whether it be a potential investor or maybe you're thinking of selling your company, what are the things that they look for that, that we as 
as small companies, small teams, even individual practitioners, what can we do from a technical standpoint, whether it's development practices or should we use Kubernetes or not, or does that matter at all? Right. <laughs> Those sorts of things. Uh, so maybe we'll start with the angle of Tiny Seed. What does Tiny Seed care about, if anything, in that regard? Yeah, that's a good. It's a good question, and I think it's helpful to think through different layers of it because investors do a different level of diligence than an acquirer does. Mm -hmm. And it makes sense, right? Because an investor usually is buying a super minority share of a company, 10%, 15%. And often an investor is investing in, it depends on you know the, the fund, but it's like 10 companies, 100 companies, 500 companies. And so mm -hmm. they have, I think, less time, but also less skin in that game than if they're saying, hey, I'm going to pay you millions of dollars and own 100% of this, and and I have to own it and operate it from here on out. I adopt all the headaches, whether there's people headaches, you know, with a with a crappy team, whether it's technical headaches that, that I think you and I will dive into. Mm -hmm. um, those, those levels are different. So I, and to be clear, like I, it took me a long time to stop identifying myself as a developer. It, I haven't written a line of production code in seven years, so now I'm not a developer. But okay. I still consider myself an entrepreneur. I, I people tell me you're an investor now, and it's like, well, that's but that's not how I think. I actually think like a founder, and I just happen to have you know budget to be able to write checks and, and advise people. But with all that said, Tiny Seed specifically, um, when we you know we will get let's say a thousand applicants right for a batch or five hundred to a thousand. And then we narrow it down and we do 70, 80 Zoom calls. And then we wound up picking up, you know, uh, making 20 offers and we get 20 people in. And we do we do due diligence, right? We then go through the financials a little bit. We go through, um, you know, to make sure that you have to, that they have like a, a, what's it called? It's like a certificate with the state that says they're in good standing. You know, there's the, all this stuff. It's a big checklist that kind of you go through. Mm -hmm. Technically... We ask questions, but we don't like log into servers, right? We don't we don't verify that like whatever. I don't you know we don't do pen testing or mm -hmm. or like hire you know an outside agency. Um, and frankly, most investors don't because it's a kind of a time thing and also a there, there's just there's not as much risk than if you're going to buy the company and kind of take on the liability. What I will say though is where DevOps and just the entire tech stack are important is in avoiding like in avoiding negative customer experiences. So it's like avoiding downtime, avoiding customer complaints, avoiding slow, um, you know, performance issues. That's the kind of stuff that can come up in online forums. If we search for the name, you know what I'm saying? In a, mm -hmm. in a light diligence, like if people are complaining about the tech, we will ask like, what's going on with it? What happened? Why did you have a two day outage in mm -hmm. May? And if they can, if someone, can explain it like, oh, well, it was a one-time thing and my web host went down or blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay. But if it's like, well, we had this tech, you know, it's like you kind of get into it. So yeah. what I'll say is the level of diligence for investors is, is, um, cursory, I will say. And whether you use Kubernetes or not, doesn't Nobody cares, matter. right? No, yeah. we don't care. Yeah. For an acquirer though, cause I've sold, a, I've sold a few companies and, and one of them was a, was a big sale that they hired multiple consultants to come scan through our code base to look for um, open source stuff that might be a problem, oh, like yeah. the, where the license, you know, I, I forget what all the licenses are, but right. some you lose some open source components and suddenly the open source project owns your code base or whatever, right. or you have to open source the whole thing. Right. So they really want to avoid that because they're buying, they're paying millions of dollars for something. So they literally scanned the code base um, 
And then we did a big architecture walkthrough in front of a, you know, kind of a panel of engineers in front of a big whiteboard. Now, what's interesting is, do I, th- and, and we did great because my co-founder was, is just a solid developer. And, and okay. I gave him the time at the beginning, having been a developer, I gave him a ton of time at the beginning to set things up right. Even though mm-hmm. we moved slower, it, we had this amazing foundation, right? Mm-hmm. And so we passed with flying colors. In fact, at one point, the lead engineer or kind of the CTO turned to the CEO who had been doing the acquisition. We were already in, right? We had the offer. We had the purchase price. It was all set. He turns, he said, I think they're I think their technical uh, processes are better than ours are. And I was like, cool. Nice. So that so so we didn't fail that. What I'm cu- what I'm curious about though is if ours had been really crappy, you know, would they have I don't know if they would have bailed on the acquisition or uh-huh. not. Right. I, I I I'm doubtful. It would have had to have been really really bad. Um I will say that later and then I'll stop talking cuz I know you have other questions <laughs> but later on I was involved in another acquisition that didn't go through. It, it, I was on the acquiring side, I'll say advising and such, and their tech stack was such a mess because it was two non-technical founders and they had a bunch of contractors doing stuff. And it was mm-hmm. such a mess that we actually advised, we advised them not to buy it and they didn't. And okay. I can't say, I can't say who I was advising. It's a little sure. stuff, but yeah. I have, so I have been a part, a party to one, it was going to be a multi-million dollar acquisition that, that was, you know. Two founders bootstrapped, and and the technical side of things was a major, major hurdle because it was not set up well. Are are you free to talk in more detail about that? I mean, obviously not the details sure. of the thing, but like, what were the two or three biggest problems you saw there that might have changed your mind if they weren't there? Yeah, and and I'm gonna have to go for memory because it's like five years ago, and I spent like two hours thinking about it. Right, we okay. did a call, and then we were all like, it was like all right, do the vote. And we looked around a table and it was just all of us doing the <laughs> thumbs down. Um, but my memory is they had servers in like three different locations or maybe it was even with three different, it was like they had AWS and then they had this one with this service for like processing. of that, And it didn't make sense. It was like, why? And, and they really couldn't answer. It was like, why do you have these, why are you paying these three web hosts and like sending data across the kind of the open internet space per se, what it, it should mm-hmm. just be all AWS. And it's like, well, it's because when we originally built it, blah, blah, like it was really bad legacy architecture. And then the core of their business was using a component that was, it was like being deprecated or a service that was being deprecated or, th- or that that company was starting a competitor to this service. It, like they were mm-hmm. going to start competing. Like it was this very odd and these are things they could have coded around they, or, or could have, like, if it was two devs, we, if it was you and me, like in my heyday, we would have figured it out, right? We would yeah. have combined everything in some servers because we wouldn't have lived with that tech debt. It was right. massive tech debt. Now, it turns out what they, we did tell them, hey, this is why we can't go through with this. This is a huge part of it. And to their credit, they spent the next six months, they hired like a senior whatever, and they spent the next six months cleaning it up. And they came okay. back and actually thanked us and said, our business is in such better shape now because oh. of this. And in fact, our performance and our, you know, uh, uh, they didn't have a lot of downtime, but our performance and whatever else is so much improved. And now we feel like if we were to sell at some point, um, we're just in a better place to do it. Well, that's that's a nice ending to a, a bad yeah, story. Was. So that's yep. good. Yeah. Uh, well, there's, there's a lot of things, of course. I mean, d- DevOps operations, software, these, these are all things that lie beneath the surface. You know, as, as Daniel North likes to say, software is, is like surgery. <laughs> the less you have, the better. No, nobody wants software. They want a solution to a problem. Uh, they want to send an email to their client. They don't care about the server that sits in between. 
but all these things that we that that we do that you did as a developer they lie beneath the surface and they manage that stuff and although the problems this sort of tech debt isn't always visible to the end users it can have an impact and so i'm I'm curious what kinds of impacts um you might be looking for in um a tiny seed or, or as an acquirer that you wouldn't necessarily point your finger and say, oh, that's a technical problem, but it could be. And so like some examples I can think of would be um, how how frequently do you release to your customers? How frequently do they get updates to the software? Uh, is that something that matters? Um, security concerns, of course, um, would be would be something. Um, and you've already mentioned tech debt and uptime. So so maybe I'll just stop at, at those two, security and like release frequency. Do those matter at all from an investment standpoint? Security certainly does. Release frequency... <laughs> Like I care about it because personally I have built software both as a developer and as an entrepreneur. And, and so to me, I know that's a signal, but I would say most investors don't ask, don't care, you know, um, in terms of how often you're really, again, they care as much as it impacts the business because they're buying a business that has, you know, it's, it's really numbers driven. Security is a huge issue though, right? With hacks I've, I've, so I've done 20 angel investments personally, my, my wife and I. And then we funded almost 60 companies with tiny seed and of and I advise and I, you know, I just know mm-hmm. a lot of entrepreneurs and I have been, um, an advisor to two comp, two separate companies that have been hacked mm-hmm. and to, to, to varying degrees, you know, and, and it's, it's really unfortunate. Now the one company had already taken investment and the other one actually, let me think, oh, I guess both of them had already taken it. Being hacked though is it sucks and and but it's how you deal with it then right it's how the, it's how you communicate it it's how you resolve it how you talk to your customers about it um, but I, certainly security has a lot of a lot more liability than a lot of other things if you release to your customers once a month and they're mad about it fine you could you could still build a great business if your software <laughs> or servers are insecure you can literally end the company right I yeah. mean you can you can put the company over the edge so security is a big one and it's something that um, cert, I, you know, investors care about, but it's not like, again, it's not like they're doing pen testing or, or hiring people. Mm-hmm. So there's security, there's performance, right? Speed of the app and speed of, of any service you're using. And then there's uptime, like you were saying, reliability and uptime. And, and then I get, I guess the fourth is quality, right? It's buggy, bugginess. Oh, sure. Some apps just get so dang buggy that, um, I mean, yeah, I, I don't want to name names, but I've, I've literally switched software, uh, platforms because of the bugginess. I think those are the key indicators um mm-hmm. you know that that i think are gonna because those are those are the ones that are gonna impact your customers and those are the ones that are gonna cause people to leave to churn and then that there then impacts all your metrics you know and, and impacts your ability to grow uh, uh, so will, will an investor look for these these metrics specifically or do they look for, for the are these more the like leading result. indicators? They look They're for le- churn. They look yeah. for complaints on bulletin boards and, and whatever. Pretty much, yeah. yeah. I mean, a lot, especially, it depends. So it depends, right? When you get to a Series A, which is like a big round, like I'm going to, you know, a Series A is when you raised $10 million at a $50 million valuation. So it's a mm-hmm. big number. Those venture capitalists tend to do more in-depth stuff and i'm guessing if they're writing a check that big that they would that they would treat it more like an acquisition where they they would i would probably in their shoes hire a consultant to come and literally you know look at your code base or scan it or, or pen test or just do some cursory stuff there has to be that element of it 
but you know, most companies don't make it there, right? Most companies right. raise 250,000 from, from friends and family or from an accelerator or from an angel round. And, uh, the diligence there is less. And that is more of, Hey, here's a slide deck with my numbers in the story of the company. And we're doing this much revenue and growing. And it's like, cool. I'll take your word for it. Mm -hmm. Good. Um, and then of course, when you're doing an acquisition, it's, it's more, it's more similar. It sounds like to the series a yeah. type of diligence, right? That's at least been my experience. You know, I've only real, I mean, I've been, I've been a part of like, I've sold small apps in the you know where the exit price is in the six the six figure uh, mm -hmm. arena, then a couple of those, and that diligence was not huge, but it's when you get into the millions that that it starts really mattering, and especially mm -hmm. if you're going to acquire a, a team with it as oh, well, right? right? It, mm -hmm. it adds because then you get yeah you get into all kinds of stuff once you're bringing people on. When you're consulting with companies, whether they're in tiny seed or you're just they're asking your advice. Uh, what kind of suggestions do you have for them when it comes to technical practices? I mean, mm. uh, they, they say, should we, should we hire a, a, a senior developer or three juniors or, mm. you know, whatever mm -hmm. kinds of things they might ask? Um, we'll, we'll start really broad here and maybe I'll narrow down. But what kind of advice do you give when it comes to technical practices to these yeah. people? Yeah, no, that, that's a really good question, actually. Um, the interesting thing is... In the kind of world that I live in, which is like the bootstrapped and mostly bootstrap software space, or most of it's SaaS, but there are people doing other stuff. Um, it's about 80%. Yeah, it's like 80% technical founders, 85% mm -hmm. in, in that somewhere in that range of where there's at least one technical founder. And usually that technical founder, oftentimes they have a good head on their shoulders and they are making solid decisions. Um, Sometimes we do see where it's two non-technical founders, which is a rarity, or it's one or two, and they, as a non-developer trying to build software, especially SaaS, which is pretty complex, um, mm -hmm. we do see some some struggles where it's like they've never, they don't know what um, Agile is or con, you know, Kanban's or or scrum or and i'm not a, a proponent of any of these but it's like I, I do think having some system i do think having you know um what's it called like retrospectives and you do a sprint and this and that like some type of way that you manage this is, is helpful and if you've never been a developer you just have no idea right mm -hmm. so right. Uh, all that to say there's a small subset where i do find myself i don't directly coach them on hey i think you should set up a monthly sprint blah 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 i'm not down at that level but what i'll do is i'll connect them with a mentor who i know is okay. really good at it and i'll say talk to this person there's actually a few of our tiny seed founders themselves who run SaaS for agile teams right there's one okay. called scatterspoke that is for agile retrospective so i would like connect someone to them and say talk to talk to these folks and they will tell you <laughs> one of them is like a certified scrum master and does a bunch of speaking like she can basically give you in 30 minutes like 10 times more than i could give you right uh -huh. um, so we have a small subset like that but it's pretty rare by the time they make it to us a lot of folks kind of have their head on their shoulders mm -hmm. um but in terms of hiring that it's that's so interesting you bring that up because that does come up a lot um i talk to a lot of founders advise them or, or invested in them who are basically making their first hire right it's one or two mm -hmm. co-founders and they've made it to 10k 40k a month whatever it is and it's just the two of them and a few contractors and so they're saying i'm making a full-time hire we need to alleviate some of the development work you know we need i need a backup when i want to go on vacation we need another uh, another uh you know solid person and usually my advice is for that first hire 
hire someone more senior than you think you need. Because mm-hmm. a lot of us, especially as bootstrappers, are penny pinching. I'm I'm way guilty of this. And so I'm I'm looking for the cheapest. Well, I can hire this developer for for 40k because they're like entry level this is gonna be great well the you know i and and i think as you get bigger there's room for that i love apprenticeship i love training but when you're a two-person company you just don't have time for that when you're a two-person mm-hmm. company competing and moving quickly you need mid-level to senior people and you should you should invest the money and spend the money to do it mm-hmm. i would agree uh i don't have the same experience you do uh or the same depth of experience that you do but uh i have cleaned up enough uh code bases created by juniors to uh to agree that uh it's a well worth the investment uh if your business depends on that code yep to to have a senior and again there is a there's a time and a place for juniors and it's when you have a bit more scaffolding you have more devs like when you maybe if you have three or four developers well now you could bring a junior on because enough people can you know can uh can uh code review and and make sure the quality is maintained but when it's just you and you're sprinting as fast as you can Bringing someone on, you know, five plus years experience, even though they're a lot more expensive, is just, it's a no-brainer early. Yeah. When you're working with these technical co-founders, are they generally, I would imagine their first hire probably is not a technical person. They're looking for sales or marketing or something like that. Is that accurate? Yeah. Support, customer success, sales, marketing. Some, yeah. If we have two developer co-founders who want to hire a developer, I will say, why, what, what is, how big, how complex is your product? Because unless you're just growing amazingly right now, as it is, then why would you hire a third technical? Oftentimes we have one dev, one non dev who's basically doing all of that, you know, who's doing everything else. And what they find is they're in a competitive space and it's moving so fast that they, they just can't ship features fast enough. And they are um they do want to hire a dev as the first you know as the first hire to both have backup but it's like redundancy too it's like when if i, I do want to go on vacation right or i don't want to feel like i have to bring my laptop with me everywhere all the time to, mm-hmm. to make sure the uptime is is uh is sufficient i i think you've answered the the, the big question i wanted to, to to address which is just sort of get a sense for how much of these things matter to external parties uh if you're in that boat yeah but i, well, I would like Go, go I, I will say one other thing. It's like external parties is one thing, and and that's obviously important if you're going to raise a round, if you decide that you're going to you know get funding that, or if you're going to sell as well, that's important. Mm-hmm. But also, if you're going to run this business for a decade, like some if some folks want to bootstrap and run it for five, ten, twenty years, you have to. You shouldn't care about what external parties think. You should care about what you're going to have to put up with, and mm-hmm. can you find good talent if your code base sucks. If, if you, people will quit, I mean, bottom line, I, I have known companies that lose, that churn through engineers because the code base is so crufty and there's so much technical debt that no one wants to work in it, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and it's just constant, like make a change here, get a regression, uh, a bug somewhere else. Cause there's no code, there's no test coverage, right? Or minimal test. Right. Coverage. So your ability to hire and retain people in the long term, and then your feature velocity as well, just plummets after you're doing great in the early days because you're shipping all this stuff with no test look how fast we're moving you get a year two three years in if you're thinking about building a real business you can't you can't do it with a crappy code base because or it's hard to do because your feature velocity slows down and then competitors catch you and we've seen it right i mean look at whatever big tool that everybody complains about salesforce or i don't know infusion style you know i could name a Mm -hmm. few but and that's what happens, right? They started early days, oftentimes with no technical co-founder, and you know that that code base is rough. And so no one wants to work there. 
They have to pay mm-hmm. a lot more to keep engineers as well as combat pay. Cause it's like, it's not a fun place to work. Cause it's like, it, you know, everything's breaking all the time. Right. Oh, good. I would like to talk a little bit more about, uh, what you're doing, uh, these days. Um, because I, I do think that what you do, uh, is likely relevant to many of the listeners, not all, but many, um, so uh, you, you did talk about it briefly in the introduction, but do you want to give a little bit more introduction to what MicroConf is and who should be interested in, in attending and then maybe Tiny Seed and anything else you're working on? Yeah, no, I appreciate that. So, you know, our, our tagline, I'm going to the website right now because you know how you, you change your, uh, your H1 often enough you forget it, but MicroConf is where bootstrap SaaS founders launch, meet, learn, and grow. And it started as, in, as one in-person event in Las Vegas in 2011. And it was me and a co-founder just bootstrapping this event. And we had no idea what we were getting into, but we wanted to get together with other people who wanted to, it was pretty much software developers who wanted to build products that they could make a full-time living from. And that was the early thing. It was like, we don't want funding. I think that the tagline for many years was the conference for self-funded products or self-funded startups. Now, later on, we realized there's a lot of folks who are still of that self-funded bootstrap mindset who maybe go raise $100,000 or 200 grand to make it easier. And that's, you're still mostly bootstrapped. You're not going on this, you're not going after Facebook and Google and you know, you're not trying to become a unicorn. And so we've, we've had to adjust that to where we still say bootstrapped or mostly bootstrapped. But now MicroConf is, like I said, we do three, we're going to do like 13 events this year, COVID willing. Um, and there, there'll be three kind of flagship events where there's a large one in, in the U.S., in Minneapolis, and there's one in, in uh, Europe in October. We don't know location yet. But in addition to our in-person events where we get together with folks, uh, we also have an online community of about 2,500 Bootstrap founders. It's free. It's called MicroConf Connect, and that's in Slack. And so if, you, if someone's interested, you go to microconfconnect.com and apply. We heavily moderate it. We have a community manager, and that's kind of a free service we offer to because uh, we didn't see any really good bootstrap. Well, there there are only a few really good bootstrap communities, um, and we wanted to to um, you know help folks with that with the guidance and everything. And then our, our honestly, our YouTube channel is is pretty pretty good. It's like 300, okay. yeah. 300 videos. It's a lot of conference talks it's for people who want to start you know start software companies. And um, it's youtube.com slash microconf if folks want to check it out. And then what we noticed, I mean, I'll lead us right into Tiny Seed because they're kind of their sister companies, if you think about it. What what I noticed is that as MicroConfident has kind of, I mean, bootstrapping and bootstrapping SaaS just wasn't really a thing in 2011. Uh, mm-hmm. They were, there were like a, there were a handful of SaaS companies that we knew about, you know, they just weren't that many. But as the years went on, it became obvious that this, this idea of bootstrapping and bootstrapping SaaS specifically was evolving. And I saw more and more founders start to, raise small amounts of funding, 100,000, 200, 300,000, and still keep that bootstrap capital efficient ethos, you know, and be be more ambitious maybe, but um, not hop on the venture track. And so I personally, I had an exit, I sold a company, and then I started investing in these founders. And I had written maybe 10 angel checks. And I was kind of like, okay, that's kind of all the money I have to invest in in, you know, bootstrap founders. That's great. So now I have to wait 10 years for the return. And I kept getting people saying, well, someone should really raise a fund and do this for more people. And I remember someone coming up at a conference at a microconf and I said, yeah, someone should really do that. And then I kind of walked away and then an hour later it clicks. Wait a minute. I, that should be, if someone's going to do it, it should be me. So I didn't want to raise a fund. I don't like, 
I've never raised funds in my life. I bootstrapped every company. You know, I'm not anti, I was never anti-funding, but I was just, it wasn't something that interested me. And so yeah. I, I found a co-founder who's really good at it. And so we started Tiny Seed, which is an arm of MicroConf that invests oh, okay. in bootstrap founders. And it's an accelerator. Like I said, it's our year-long remote program. Um, we actually have applications that I think are open uh, now as this episode goes live uh, for, we have our Americas program. So it's North, North South America. And then we have, uh, this is our first application process for, um, European time zone founders. So EMEA, right? It's a Middle East, European, mm -hmm. and Africa. I'm excited about that. That's exciting. Yeah. It's pretty cool. cool. Great. And then you have, of course, your podcast too that I mentioned early on. Yeah. Folks listen to this podcast They they and they're interested in entrepreneurship. They might, because our, ours has a slight technical bent, you know, it's that we don't dig deep into the, the code and the, the stuff, but there's always that hint because you can't, you can't take that out of me as the mm -hmm. host, right? It's like, that's yeah. how I, I think about things like an engineer. Cool. It's startups for the rest of us. If folks want to check it out. Great. We'll have links to all of that. Um, Rob, if anybody's interested in reaching out to you, um, are you open for contact? And if so, sure. how? Yeah, yeah. Probably Twitter might be the best. I'm at Rob Walling uh, and folks can, uh, my DMs are open. Great. Well, thank you, Rob. Uh, it's been educational. Is there anything you would like to add before we sign off today? No, I just want to thank you for having me on. It's been fun. Thanks. It's been a lot of fun for me too.